This is Tax Update for Saturday, November the 26th, 2005. The Tax Update podcast is intended for tax professionals and is not designed for those not skilled in independent tax research. All the readers and listeners are expected to do their own research to confirm items raised in this presentation before relying on the positions presented. The podcast and the document supporting the podcast may be reproduced freely so long as no fee is charged for the use of this document. Such a prohibited use would include using this podcast or document as part of a CPE presentation for which a fee is charged. This week's podcast is, but what about the motive? Section 183 in The Doctor's Child. In this week, we're going to look at a case in the end involving a pair of doctors and the education they provide in their home with state assistance to their autistic child. These doctors ran afoul of the profit motive requirement found in Section 183 of the Code. Now, Section 183 is the provision we generally refer to as the hobby loss rule. And Section 183 defines what is the issue if we have an activity for which there is not a profit motive. And we start in Section 183 with the general rule at Section 183A. Section 183A tells us in the case of an activity engaged in by an individual or an S-corporation, if such activity is not engaged in for profit, no deduction attributable to such activity shall be allowed under this chapter except as provided in this section. So essentially, the general rule is if we have an activity not engaged for for profit under the terms of of this section, and that term is defined by the section, then no deduction shall be allowed except to the extent you clear this section. This is much like the office and home rule we find at 280A, where the provision says ignore everything else in the code for now. You have to come under this section. Any deduction has to clear this filter in the end before it can get out. The deductions allowed are found in B, which is titled, reasonably enough, Deductions Allowable. Section 183B provides, in a case of an activity not engaged in for profit, there shall be allowed the deductions which would be allowable to the taxable year without regard to whether it was engaged for in a profit. But essentially, we cap that amount at the income from the activity. This deduction has a problem because you take a look at some other issues in the code and we quickly discover that we have an issue here for an individual. If you look in section 62, you'll find the deductions allowed under section 183 are not allowed in computing adjusted gross income. That is, section 62 tells us which things we can take above the line. So while the income is above the line, because income is always above the line, The deduction under Section 183 is an itemized deduction. Even worse, the general rule is, per Code Section 67, unless an itemized deduction is listed in Code Section 67B as not being subject to the 2% of adjusted gross income limitation, then essentially it is. And, as you might expect, Section 183 isn't listed in 67B, nor is Section 183 listed in the areas for deductions allowable for the alternate minimum tax. So if we have a hobby loss, we may find that essentially we have a loss, but we're going to have what will become income in the activity. Now, what is an activity not engaged for for profit? That tells us number C. Sub C under Section 183 
means any activity other than one with respect to which deductions are allowable for the taxable year under Section 162 or Paragraph 1 or 2 of Section 212. Section 212 is the income-producing activity section. 162 is trade or business. Now, this is effectively a circular reference in many ways because basically Section 162 and 212 both require a profit motive to get a deduction under them. So, essentially, if you're not under those two because you don't have a profit motive, then under this section you don't have a profit motive. Circular, but we get there. Where this issue tends to come up most often is when the client is doing something on the side, something other than what they normally do and which creates expenses, isn't creating much income, and arguably may be engaged upon for personal pleasure. We see that quite often. Horses are the general example. We often see horse activities run by a physician who has substantial income. But we see various other items that come under this. Considering you're listening to a podcast, I suspect a few podcasters this year are going to try the same issue, having incurred and put together nice big radio studios, essentially, from their podcast operations, and they will attempt to claim at the end of the year that it's a profit-for-profit operation, even if they haven't yet figured out how it should be a for-profit operation, or maybe we'll never figure that out. Uh, With some of the podcasts you'll find in the iTunes Music Store, you'll probably suggest that maybe it'd be very difficult for them to be profitable. Nevertheless, you'll see that podcasting may give us a new area of work in 183. Now, we do go, though, to a section now, the presumption section, that causes lots of confusion. Section 182, 183D gives us a presumption of profit, if certain tests are met. Now, key factor to get started with. This is a presumption. It is not a safe harbor. What's the difference? In a safe harbor, you would be allowed the deduction if you met the test. So it says, a safe harbor says, if you do this, you are deemed to be okay. The presumption merely says that we start now with the presumption you meet the test, but the IRS can still overcome it. As well, if you fail to meet the test under Section 183D, you can still argue your way back into a profit motive, if it appears reasonable otherwise, and we'll get into the regulations and the tests we use for that purpose. But it is important to note that Section 183D is not an absolute test. Whichever way that turns out, you still can get the opposite result ultimately at the end of the day when the court looks at your case. But let's talk about the presumption now. Under Section 183D, we can turn the presumption in favor of ourselves If the income derived from an activity other than horse raising, horse raising has special rules here, our horse activities have special rules, if we have profit from the activity for three or more of the taxable years in the period of five taxable years. So basically, if I look at a five-year period, I have a net profit in three of the five years, I have a presumption of a profitable activity. Now, in the case of a horse's activity, and this is involves the breeding, training, showing, or racing of horses, we change that and our test becomes if we have a profit in two of seven years preceding the year in question. 
in that case, we look at our horse test so we don't have to be profitable as often in the horse raising business to get the presumption. And it's over a longer time period. Now, you might take a look at that and decide, well, I've got to look back at five years. The statute's only three. What happens if we're not yet done with the statute? Well, here comes the catch. If we're just one or two years into the activity, then we can make an election under Section 183E to essentially hold the statute open on this issue until we get the presumption test cleared. Now, what that essentially means, we essentially wait until we get to the point where we cannot any longer meet the test, but you hold it open to then, and then the IRS will have a period of two years after the last date, after the date we close this off, to assess your tax regardless of the statute. So depending on the test, if we have to go out the full five years, the IRS has two years now to go back to that five-year-old return and assess tax by saying you did not have a profit motive and now we're going to attack it on profit motive. This one is an interesting call because whether or not you win, please remember, you may still have to argue profit motive. So whether or not the test is passed, you may still have an issue in front of you. Secondly, realize that essentially there's a bias here to the taxpayer wanting to meet this test that could probably render it even more questionable, meaning did they manipulate items to attempt to somehow barely clear this test. So I think there's a bad fact situation it's very easy to get into unless the activity truly turns profitable. And finally, we're going to go back with penalties and interest back to that first year and those continue to run. So making this election as opposed to just digging in and let's argue the profit motive today is not necessarily a simple answer. If you're sure you'll get it, most likely if you do truly show profit and we truly show the the upward movement and it's clearly now profitable and it's going to become profitable over its life, then it would make sense to do this. But if you're just hoping it becomes profitable, then maybe this election is not such a smart idea. Now let us presume though that we're going to carry on now we're in a real question of did we have a profit motive. Regulation 1.183-2B provides a nine-factor test that is used to determine if an activity is not engaged in for profit. And in the court cases in question the nine factors are usually spelled out because now we're in a factual situation. Let's take a look at the nine factors under 1.183-2b. The first factor is the manner in which the taxpayer carry on, carries on the activity. Does the taxpayer carry it on in a business-like manner? Does he act the way you would expect him to use for business? Does he make changes in the method of operation when it becomes obvious he's not yet made a profit, or does, for example, our podcaster in the initial just go out and buy more equipment every year, still have no revenue stream, have no attempt to try to find a revenue stream? We may have a problem. But the question is, are we businesslike? Do we do it? What quite often is done here is the IRS will argue in comparison with how the taxpayer conducts their regular activity that they do for trade or business. That's especially true if the taxpayer owns a closely held company that's profitable. For instance, the physician in a medical practice who has his own practice, 
That is conducted in a business-like fashion. In that case, he has consultants come in and work with him for profitability. People do consulting. He works on building up his revenue. But over here with the horses, he's not doing anything like that. That can get us a problem. The records are kept sloppily. That can get us a problem. Number two, the expertise of the taxpayer or his advisors. Does the taxpayer have the background to make it believable that this is an area that he or she should have some clue what's going on, that in essence they could do this sort of thing? So is the taxpayer a basically expert in horses, if the horses are the question? Or has he consulted people to build up that expertise that truly have the background? A lack of intent to derive profit may be indicated, according to the regulations, unless it appears the taxpayer's attempt to develop newer superior techniques. Right? If he doesn't do in accordance with such, such act, if he does not carry on the activity in accordance with the practice uh, that goes on traditionally in the industry or based upon expert advice, merely acquiring expert advice but not taking that advice may be a negative indication. So if the taxpayer was told you need to go out and do the following things, he doesn't do that, he's still non-profitable, there may be a question whether or not he truly had a profitable activity. Number three, the time and effort expended by the taxpayer in carrying on the activity. The fact that the taxpayer spends a lot of time in the activity and there's no personal uh, pleasure, shall we say, may indicate that there's going to be a profit motive. If he withdraws from another activity, the doctor shuts down his medical practice and operates full-time the horse business, that may indicate a profit activity. He is changing over. He truly is going for profit here. Uh, that probably wouldn't go if the doctor is doing this in the year he was going to retire anyway. But essentially, the doctor does this. He shuts down. We have a 30-year-old physician who quits his medical practice and starts training horses then we may very well have somebody with a profit motive because they need it to work. Number four, is there an expectation that the assets used in the activity may appreciate in value? This option is what bails us out in most cases when we look at rental properties because rentals quite often show losses for many years beyond the five-year period that we talk about here. But in that case, we reasonably can expect the real estate to appreciate and make up for those losses. The same may be true in other areas. However, you really need to take a look here to make sure there is a reasonable expectation that the assets are truly being used in the activity. In essence, that the items that we expect to make a profit on are really part of this business and we need to carry on the business to make sense of it or carrying on the business helps offset some of the continuing costs. And that it's realistic to expect we'll make money. Probably I am not going to make money from the car I bought this year. If I bought a Toyota Corolla this year and I'm going to sell that in five years, I'm probably not going to see that appreciate. And so that would be assets like that or ones that may not work. Or if I've never been able to sell, for instance, the horses at a profit, that may indicate that it's not reasonable to expect they're going to bail me out. Number five, the success of the taxpayer in carrying on other similar or dissimilar activities. Now, if the taxpayer has done similar things in the past and converted them from unprofitable to profitable, then that indicates that maybe there is a profit motive here. He's done it before, and so it is very useful in doing that. Number six, the taxpayer's history of income or losses with respect to the activity. 
The regulation recognizes that a startup phase may have a loss, but it notes that if the losses continue to be sustained beyond the period which is usually necessary to bring it to profitability, and you can't explain why that's happening, then it may be indicative of the fact that this is not being carried on for a profit. Now, you can still explain this away because there were items that truly could not be foreseen or couldn't be predicted ahead of time. Similarly, a series of years for, with income indicate there is a profit motive, most likely. It would be strong evidence, basically. And if you've got that, let's be honest, we're probably not here arguing this position. The amounts of occasional profit, if any, which are earned. Maybe it loses money, but essentially every so often generates profits. If those profits every so often are significant, we might have a profitable activity. It's reasonable, even if the profit is only occasional. However, if we have very minor profits every so often, followed by huge losses, then it does not appear we have a profitable activity. Number eight, the financial status of the taxpayer. To be honest, this one is obviously is normally a key issue. Does the taxpayer really need this business to be profitable? While it is possible to have a profit motive with a loss activity if the taxpayer doesn't really need it to be profitable, reality is that the courts tend to look very heavily at the issue that Dr. X simply did not need this activity to make money. If the taxpayer really doesn't need it, there may be a question where the profit motive is there, especially if he continues to operate it at a loss for all these periods. And number nine, the elements of personal pleasure or recreation. The doctor just likes to ride horses. If that's the principal reason and it's personal enjoyment or the prestige of being able to say he has horses, but it's not doing him any good in any other fashion, then in fact, Probably this looks like there may not be a profit motive. We have found the motivation, and the motivation was not profit. Key issue. These are facts and circumstances tests. Quite often, the nine factors don't all break one way. And what the court has to do is evaluate which way they go and what we end up doing. This is ultimately a smell test. If it smells bad, it's probably not going to fly. This is a case where you have to be able to tell your client, I don't know this is going to work because I look at this and quite frankly, I can't look at it without smirking about this idea you expect to make a profit. If you can't say it with a straight face, it probably isn't a profit motive. And that'll be the key issue. But even if your client has convinced themselves that there's a profit motive here, and they may very well to defend the deduction, remember that we're still going to have to convince a judge or initially you have to convince an IRS agent that there's a profit motive, so you do have to explain it from a totally dispassionate viewpoint, does it appear it's there. With that in mind, let's take a look at the case of the doctor's child. This is the case of Michael Paul Remler and Pauline Valise, Tax Court Memo 2005-265, a case that came down recently. Doctors Remler and Valise were a pair of physicians who had a child diagnosed with moderately severe autism in 1997. The taxpayers came to the conclusion that the Berkeley schools could not provide their child with the education the child needed and entered into an agreement with the school district the district would reimburse them $44,000 each year for providing education 
in exchange for the parents agreeing not to hold the district liable for not providing the free education that the state law would require. The taxpayers set up two programs, a micro-school and an after-school program, as they referred to them, with funds from the district and some funding from an organization called the Regional Center for Parents with Children with Learning Disabilities. Every year in question, the expenses for the education exceeded the income. The doctor's child was the only participant in either program. The doctor did not advertise or otherwise seek other participants for their program, so their child is the only one being educated. The court pointed out they did not apply for other grants, did not maintain a bank account, did not have any separate assets. The court noted, essentially, looking at the nine factors, that while Dr. Remler had special expertise in the area of learning disabilities, none of the other factors broke in their favor. In fact, the court noted, this factor is heavily outweighed by the manner in which petitioners conducted the activity, the time and effort they expended, the lack of occasional profits, their petitioner's financial status, and their personal motive. We hold the petitioners did not engage in the special education activity for profit during the years in issue within the meaning of Section 183. This was a bad smell case. It simply is not one you could look at and say there was a profit motive without smirking to yourself. It may be a case that was very understandable. It may be one where the doctors uh, obviously you know, were in a situation that generates sympathy that they had an autistic child, but they clearly weren't running an educational institution for profit to treat autistic children. They were running, they were basically educating their child. They had hired third parties to come in and perform the educational services, and essentially they were just being partially subsidized for that. Now, what I found interesting is the IRS apparently did not assert penalties on this understatement, but however did assert penalties on their failure to report a much smaller state income tax refund. Can't comment on why that was the result we got, but that was the result we got. Now, as I've noted, tax update is intended for tax professionals, and you should confirm this on your own. Confirm all the conclusions. However, as a tax professional, I believe we do have to be concerned when our clients come in with activities that cause us to wonder if they have a profit motive. And we have to remember that this is definitely a case where same as last year doesn't work. I have one year of losses, that's fine, but every year we keep adding losses is another chink in our armor of trying to argue that we have a profit motive. Too often in the rush of tax season, we want to just do whatever was done last year and not have this conversation with the client about do we truly have a profit motive. Now, ultimately, the profit motive is a factual case, and ultimately, unless it is way out of the realm of being possible, you have a case where you probably can still sign the return as long as there is a reasonable motive. It's not a case where there's obviously no income ever is going to come from this for any reason and there's no way it could be profitable. But you need to talk with your client because if they are examined and they continue to show losses, there's a high probability the IRS would throw it out. And there's a high probability they would have a tax liability. And the question becomes, at certain point, perhaps discretion is the better part of valor. That is, shut the activity down is a smart thing to do 
because at that point, shutting it down is a reasonable action to take when you discovered it could not be done profitably. These cases tend to become a pig's hogs case, that is, people who were hoggish and tried to get the biggest possible tax benefit from conducting the activity they liked conducting are the ones who tend to get nailed. People who finally agree that this is not profitable and shut it down are the ones who get to keep the tax benefits. Well, this has been the tax update for the weekend of Thanksgiving. Hopefully you enjoyed your Thanksgiving and uh, are moving on and we're moving on into the Christmas season. I will be heading to Tulsa, Oklahoma this week to be speaking at the Oklahoma Tax Institute. I'll be speaking on technology again. This will be a one-hour presentation on the Friday afternoon of that particular conference. I'll be back in town again in Phoenix for another week. I will be going on December 15th to Columbus, Ohio for the Ohio State and Federal Tax Institute where I'll be giving a federal tax law update. This has been Tax Update for Saturday, November 26, 2005.